Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have David Charlo on the show, and we'll be talking about his award-winning book, Advertising Empire, Race and Visual Culture in Imperial Germany. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have David Charlo on the show, and we'll be talking about his award-winning book, Advertising Empire, Race and Visual Culture in Imperial Germany. If you were born and raised in the United States, you probably know who Aunt Jemima is. Aunt Jemima is an icon so to say, that is used to sell pancake syrup and pancake mix. Those of you familiar with the history of images of African Americans will know that Aunt Jemima is a mammy. That is a symbol of a kind of safe, subdued domesticity. The mammy will take care of you and will never threaten you. Now, these images, if they're not overtly racist, which they probably are, are definitely racialized. That is, they involve the creation of stereotypes about certain kinds of people. And these stereotypes appeal to, in this case, white Americans who want to be taken care of by a mammy. I mean, after all, pancakes are a kind of comfort food. And the mammy will give them to you. And Jemima will give them to you. I grew up with this image. You can still find it in a very different form on the shelves of American grocery stores. What I did not know was that Images such as this, although different in meanings, could be found in Imperial Germany, that is late 19th, early 20th century Germany. And they had somewhat similar origins. Aunt Jemima came from the culture of minstrel shows, and the German images did as well. But in the German case, they also came from the German experiment with imperialism and colonialism in Southwest Africa. Well, advertisers who already had images of Africans in their kit, used this colonial connection to further expand the image of the African in German advertising and culture. These African stereotypes were used to sell primarily tobacco and cocoa and coffee. They were very highly racialized, if not overtly racist, which they probably were. Well, David does a terrific job of telling us what these images meant for Germans and where they came from and where they went after Imperial Germany became the Weimar Republic and then Nazi Germany and so on. It's a really terrific read. I really enjoyed talking to David today, and I I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, David. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm glad to hear that. Today we have David Charlo on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Advertising Empire, Race and Visual Culture in Imperial Germany. One of the things I really liked about this book is that it does focus on images and it doesn't exactly try to to read those images in the absence of 
other evidence. And I, I think historians and social scientists in general do a little bit too much of this. They try to figure out what images mean without reference to who produced them or why they were produced or what sort of practical end that the producers of them had in mind. But David does a great job of contextualizing these things and tells us exactly who produced them and exactly why they produced them and why they chose the parts they did. And, and so we can actually give a really good reading of them. We really do know a lot about what they meant uh, to the people who created them and what message those people were trying to send. And I think that's exactly how this sort of work should be done. It's, it's not really guesswork. It's, in fact, a lot of detective work, and David does a great job of it. So anybody who's interested in visual culture, I think, will really, really enjoy this book. And anyone interested, obviously, in the history of something like advertising, the history of empire, and the history of uh, late imperial Germany. David, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure thing, Marshall. And let me start by saying thank you for the praise about the book. Um, and also thank you so much for having me on this program. Sure, my pleasure. Um, so I was, uh, I'm originally from Colorado. I was born in Colorado. Um, and uh, I grew up here. I went to an inner city high school. And people always ask me with, with my Italian sounding last name how I ended up uh, interested in, in Germany. Um, and it's really actually sort of almost by accident. Um, I wanted to take a language. Uh, my public high school had three languages, Spanish, French, and German. Um, Spanish was for the jocks. I wasn't a jock. <laughs> French was for the theater majors. I wasn't a theater major. Um, so that left me with German. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I took it. Um, I wasn't particularly good at it at first, but I stuck with it. And I stuck with it all the way through college. I went to Oberlin College. I was a history major. Mm-hmm. Um, but I took most of the British history um, in, in, at the undergrad level. Um, but I stuck with German. And it wasn't until I traveled to Germany after college in one of those sort of you know month-long um, money poor but experience rich uh, sort of travel uh, experiences that, um, that German really clicked for me as a language. Um, and it was a perfect time to be in Germany. It was uh, 1990, just after the wall came down. Mm-hmm. I traveled around East Germany. I traveled around a little bit around Eastern Europe as well. But I spent a lot of time in Germany. It was a really exciting time. Um, and then I came back from that, uh, worked in the corporate world for a while, um, and then decided I uh, worked for a, a sporting goods company. Um, as a sort of a problem solver, and then decided I wanted to go back to graduate school. So I went and uh, got a, a master's degree in history from the University of Cincinnati. Um, and my uh, a rather amazing mentor there, uh, Maura O'Connor, she uh, got me interested in the more cultural um, side of history. Um, and then after that, I took a little detour. Um, you can tell the book tends to take a little, a few detours. I think my life took a few de- detours as well. Um, I went, to, uh, I went to Zimbabwe, and I lived in Zimbabwe in Harare for a year, um, working for a local grassroots human rights organization, ZimRights. Um, and I helped uh, to edit their, uh, their newspaper, which is one of the few independent newsletters um, at the time that was not run by ZANU-PF, the, the ruling party of Zimbabwe. Um, and that experience there definitely it was life-changing in all sorts of ways, um, but it was also intellectually changing as well. And that was what really got me focused and interested in imperialism um, as um, not just a legacy that I saw every day in Zimbabwe, but also as, as a historical phenomenon. Um, and then I returned to grad school, um, entered the PhD program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, had a wonderful advisor in Rudy Koshar um, and great mentors uh, as well um, with uh, Suzanne Desson in French history um, and Laird Boswell as well. Finished up the dissertation um, I taught for a few years at MIT. I taught for uh, several years at the University of Cincinnati. Um, and then now I'm happily ensconced back in Colorado at the University of Colorado Boulder. Oh, that's very nice. That's a, it's kind of like a fairy tale story. You wandered <laughs> around and wandered around and found your way home. 
Exactly. I've been desperate to get back to Colorado my yeah. entire life, and here I am. So uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I wander around and wander around and never find my way home. But that's a different story. <laughs> In fact, I'm getting ready to move again now. I mean, I don't know what, what's going on with me. But uh, So tell us how you uh, came to write Advertising Empire. How did you choose the subject and, and pursue it? Because it, it is a little bit unusual. I think if a PhD student of mine came to me and said, yo, I'm going to write a book about advertising and images, I'd be like, Hmm, maybe. <laughs> well, I sort of, sort of like my life. I sort of, I sort of stumbled into it. Um, it was definitely, I knew I wanted to do my research on something having to do with imperialism. And again, this traces right directly back to my experiences in Southern Africa. Uh, in, in fact, when I was living in um, Zimbabwe, a friend and I took a vacation to Namibia and sort of a, the dumb idea on my part was to hitchhike there. Um, and so we hitchhiked across the Caprivi Strip. And- yeah, a vacation to Namibia. Let's just say that <laughs> sentence again, okay? Because I don't think most people are thinking, yeah, Namibia. <laughs> and our, uh, but maybe our- they should. I don't know. I- oh, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was incre- it was incredible. It was, inc- it was one of the most incredible things ever done. Our guidebook says absolutely, absolutely never do this um, because only UN relief convoys go across the Caprivi Strip, um, and you're, they're, never, they're not allowed to give you a ride. But well, we actually found a ride fairly easily on the back of, a, of an overland uh, company that was bringing Danish tourists into the uh, Okavanga Swamp. So we rode on the top of their supply truck. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty amazing experience. We wound up, after this long, you know, many days journey, um, we wound up at Swakamund on the, on the uh, small town on the coast of Namibia. Uh, and it had originally been sort of the, uh, it was the, it was the port for the uh, original colony of German Southwest Africa. Mm-hmm. And there's still a German-speaking community there. Really? Definitely. And uh, we had, you know, Zachertorte and good German beer. And, you know, it's really this vestige of, no of you know, German colonialism. And there's not that many of them left. Tsingtao uh, wow. beer in, in China being one of them. But, um, so, um, but what I was really struck with, and so there are all these sort of physical manifestations of, of German colonialism, like a giant pier and whatnot. What I was really struck with there was... The tourists, there were tons of German tourists, and especially a lot of tourists from the former East Germany, um, who were really interested in sort of reconnecting somehow with, with this former colony of Germany. Um, and that stuck with me. And so when I was preparing, when I was studying my, uh, you know, for my prelims, I was working on my dissertation prospectus, I knew I wanted to write about imperialism, colonialism in German culture somehow, and sort of the legacy, the imprint of that. Um, and, you know, I read a lot of, there wasn't much being done at that time in, in, in German imperial culture, but there had been a lot done in British culture. They did a lot of comparative reading. Um, and then when I went to Germany, I, I stuck, you know, I, 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 uh, I buried myself in the archives uh, and I dug through um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the records of the German colonial office, the records of the German colonial society, which the German colonial society is sort of like a, a pro-colonial pressure group, kind of like the NRA, but, Instead of uh, opposing gun legislation, they're pushing for a colonial acquisition. Um, and I, I buried myself uh, in these archives, and I researched all their various activities, uh, their publications, um, which there are a huge volume of publications, um, their, their festivals, their, their evening lectures, um, their, their beer abend, you know, sort of the cocktail hour, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I had a good sense of the way this, the, this organization was trying to sort of build up a culture of I guess you call it manly colonialism and, and kind of built around the idea of, of national necessity that Germany needed colonies and trying to bring this colonial idea to the German public. And that's sort of their motivating ethic. And I was looking at sort of their cultural imprint, like how, 
what sort of things were they doing? How did other Germans see what they were doing? But, but this left me, I mean, I, I actually researched this probably for six, seven, eight months. Um, but I was a little bit unsatisfied with it, um, in part because it felt like, to put it bluntly, like, like these, these German colonists were trying too hard. I mean, they were, they were trying to get, 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 get something almost unnatural, a little bit forced about their cultural productivity. They're always stressing, you know, uh, Germany's duty, Germans, their duty to support their colonial rule, you know, by you know, only genuine German colonial products because it's your national, it's your duty as a German. Um, and it, it felt kind of unnatural. So it felt kind of forced, actually. Um, but still, I was, I was very, you know, I was, I was going that direction. And then there was a complete chance finding. I was in the old German state library, and for some reason, I stumbled across this catalog reference to this book, uh, which, which translates as, as trademark humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was published in 1917, height of the First World War. Not sure what made me order it, but I did. Um, I open it up. I find the entire uh, thin book on, on, you know, pretty uh, beat up paper because of the, you know, the, the limitations on paper in the first mm-hmm. one. Um, and there's a reprints of funny advertisements from the previous decade. And a, a number of them are startlingly racist. Mm-hmm. Um, one particular one that I remember is, features an elephant. Um, and it's, it's trying to, uh, it's an, an advertisement for fasteners. And the elephant is trying to pull a fastener off the ground. And it's ripping its own trunk off, and blood is spurting out of the trunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an African figure next to it, an incredibly vicious caricature of this of this African, you know, showing, showing you know, with huge lips and wide eyes, and um, it's something that would definitely not be PC by today's standards. And he's showing shock at, at the at the trauma of the elephant. Yeah. So 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 these these, these funny ads that really grabbed my attention, and then I noticed that each one had a six digit number below it. And so I figured out that this is a tra- trademark registration number. So I traced down where these registrations are collected, and I ordered the first book um, from 1911. It arrives, three massive volumes, each over 1,000 pages. Each one has five to eight advertisements on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turned out that German advertisers were registering their ads as trademarks, um, mm-hmm. trying to give these trademarks some form of copyright protection. And I just started flipping through page after page all of these advertising images, and I was immediately struck by how many figures of Africans there were and how all of these African figures looked exactly the same. Um, they, were, they were caricatured, they were diminished, um, they were racialized um, and with, with the exaggerated uh, lips, big wide eyes, you know, uh, emphasis on you know, short stature, deformed bodies, kinky hair, and they all, were racial, and they all looked exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And then I ordered uh, a volume earlier just because, you know, story, I'm always thinking in terms of um, change over time. <laughs> and uh, the, the volume I got from the mid-1890s, it was one that came next, and the images were all over the place. They were much more amateurish, but there were a much greater variety mm-hmm. of images. That there, were, um, there were some that I would call, you know, romanticized images of, of, of blacks. There were, um, uh, you know, sort of ethnographic images. I mean, they're, 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 the... the the, the pictographic techniques were all over the map. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, how do you get from there to there? How do you get from the 1890s to 1910? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also, I, you know, I knew, knew in German colonial history at this point, I know that, you know, I had done some research on the, uh, on the Herrero uprising and, and the, gen, the genocide of the Herrero that mm-hmm. took place in uh, 1905, 1906. And, uh, and it, it struck me, why is it 
that at the same time that the German uh, military is pursuing, you know, a war in Southwest Africa against the Herero and a war that, you know, von Trotto and other, uh, you know, German generals are calling a race war. Why is it at the same time they're pursuing a genocide, genocidal policy against Africans? African figures are, are being used increasingly to advertise products back in Germany. And that doesn't make much sense to me. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of the long, the long, I'm sorry this is going on and on here, but, that, but the, uh, that's sort of the long trajectory where I ended up. Um, and when I started to do the, um, uh, when, when I started to realize that, that these, these advertising registrations were a gold mine, then I had to sort of reinvent myself as a historian of advertising. I came very late to the game, actually. Um, it was the sources that sucked me into it. Um, and so I did everything I I then, you know, uh, started going to museums and digging through collections uh, of, of advertising ephemera and product packaging. And I, you know, started reading all the advertising trade journals from the time period. Um, and I was trying to find the, the, the smoking gun. And you know, I was trying to find the, uh, the passages by advertisers um, that's, that would talk about, you know, yes, we, there's this war going on in... in um, in uh, Southwest Africa. And so if you're using a black figure, you need to, I never found that. Mm-hmm. And instead what I found was just like the colonials were trying too hard. <laughs> the advertisers <laughs> were, were trying too hard in some ways. They were trying to always portray themselves um, as, as tasteful, mm-hmm. um, as professionals, um, as, uh, as people who had, you know, they had one hand on, or, you know, sort of their finger on the pulse of, of the most modern current trends that were coming from the United States and coming from Great Britain. Um, but on the other hand, they had their feet firmly planted, you know, in German culture um, and that they were, you know, trying to, um, they were, they were artists um, as much as they were sort of commercial entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, when you started on this project, I just have a kind of, sure, sure. Right, right. it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a related question, I guess. Now, when you started this, you had to, it had to have occurred to you that we have similar sorts of images in, in American history. And I'm thinking particularly of, uh, of, of Aunt Jemima and, uh, and Uncle Remus and Uncle Ben. These are uh, commercial icons for, uh, um, for different kinds of foods. Right. Um, did, did, did you make the association immediately? Did you think, yeah, yeah well, this is the German version of that? Or, I mean, this is the crazy thing is I didn't. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, actually, only, it was only much, I, what, what I made, what the association I made, of course, is, you know, there's, there's fantastic work done in, in British imperial, imperial culture, you know, starting with uh, Mackenzie's, you know, book, uh, um, you know, Propaganda and Empire, um, and looking at the sort of the popular culture. And, and I, so I've seen some of these, I saw some of these advertising images, like the famous Paris soap ad, um, that, that has the, the inscription pear soap in the Sudan carved on the, on a rock and, mm-hmm. and all the dervishes, the Sudanese dervishes are worshiping this, this mm-hmm. soap, the, the soap slogan. Um, so I was very familiar with, with the British side of things. Um, but actually I was remarkably ignorant, uh, about the American side of things. And it's interesting as I was digging into this research, I, I was telling my mother about it and my mother grew up, you know, she, she, she moved me to Colorado. She moved to Colorado before she, before she had me, but she grew up in, in the South, in Little Rock, mm-hmm. Arkansas. And so she's the one who actually was telling me about all of these, you know, uh, well, now it's like kitschy collectibles, um, but, you know, yep. incredibly racist uh, mm-hmm. ephemera that was really so much part of, you know, sort of her childhood growing up. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember very well. I, I'm from, originally from Alabama, and then my family oh. moved to Kansas. And uh, 
you know, Aunt Jemima was part of my family as far as I knew. And, <laughs> right, uh, right. You know, I don't think I ever had real maple syrup until I was about 30. And that, that <laughs> was syrup, you know. I that, remember the dancing Aunt Jemima figure. Yeah, right. By yeah. that time, you know, that's, that's cake the, mixer. It was much yeah. more, uh, you know, sort of sanitized and much more PC. It was. It, it's true. It, it's true it was, but I, I recognize it. And I, from watching old movies, I also recognize the stereotype of a, of, of a mammy. Yes. Um, you know, because <laughs> everybody watches Gone with the Wind, and there's a mammy in Gone with the Wind. And, and so these associations were, were pretty clear to me. When I picked up your book, I thought, I thought of those, those things yeah. pretty immediately. But it, it strikes me that they're actually very, very different in a way, because uh, in America, this is uh, it's a kind of – there's a kind of wistful, elegiac – moment in them you know like you, yes. you know you, you you don't get to have a mammy anymore but you can eat like one Definitely. you know that, that kind of thing whereas in, in the german case it's entirely different that is entirely different it's entirely yeah. different and i know that american historians who've worked on this have, have, have you know found all sorts of explanations for for why there's this huge surge in in american advertising and popular culture you know starting in the 1870s um and especially really taking off in the 1890s 1900. Um, with all these figures, Aunt Jemima, you know, Uncle Ben, you know, Rastus, the cream of Rastus, the yeah, um, <laughs> all, all of the, all of these figures. Um, and, you know, and you know, there's lithographs in the, in the U.S. from the 1870s, the, the Darktown lithographs, right? And there's this whole uh, series of collectible uh, lithographs about the bumbling incompetence of, of, of black Americans. Um, and, but inter- you're exactly right. Interwoven into all of that imagery is a, uh, almost a bucolic idealism, mm-hmm. um, sort of a, an idea that this, this is, you know, it's a, it's a post-slavery moment, um, but, it, but it's a, an American historians, historians of the United States have talked about how this is in some ways sanitizing slavery. At the same time, it's sort of reinventing, you know, it's just post-slavery, but at the same time, it's reinventing um, slavery in a, in, a, in a much more peaceful um, idyllic context. Yeah, I mean, in, in Gone with the Wind, the mammy, I don't remember what her name was, but she's the most sympathetic character in the whole thing. Oh, definitely. She's definitely, definitely the smartest person. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and the idea of, you know, it's, it's you know, and, you know I, I've again read more American historians that, um, you know, it's comforting for, uh, you know, uh, a lower middle class or middle class uh, mother to, you know, in, in the kitchen to have, you know, this almost iconic you know, African-American serving woman there on her cereal box or there on her yeah. you know, full syrup or, or whatnot. And, and it, it, there's all sorts of things going into that. Um, mm-hmm. And what's, what's fascinating to me is the way the Germans borrow that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they borrow it without really understanding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they borrow it through so many different avenues. Yeah, um, let's talk about those avenues a little bit. Sure, because sure. What, one, before we, Let's talk a little bit about the origins of this in Germany because I, I want to start a little earlier than... Uh, these uh, these sort of borrowings from American culture, if that's what they are. Uh, there, there's something that you mentioned in the book that I was unaware of, and I've looked at a lot of these uh, woodcuts and things, and that is the tobacco moor. Yes. Uh, and I want you to talk about that because in American in in, in American culture, uh, we have the uh, um, we have the, the the sometimes called the drugstore Indian or the tobacco yes, Indian, right? You know, this is a wooden Indian, uh, and, and and the association there is pretty clear. You know, so tobacco is a, is a new world product, and the Indians introduced it to the white folks, and so mm-hmm. that, that's what's going on there. But the tobacco more, that just is confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually confusing to everyone. <laughs> I think, I think uh, no one really knows what to make of it. Um, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I've traced it mostly as it circulates in German, uh, in, in Germany and in German uh, sort of 
I used to call it mercantile, uh, you know, sort of pre-commercial, sort of mercantile uh, uh, woodcuts and other sorts of, of imagery. Um, but it's probably, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little on a limb here, but I think it probably merges first in Britain. Because um, Brit- in Britain, the figure's called the Blackamoor. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's the Blackamoor in Britain, the, the, the Tabakmoor uh, in German, the, the Tabakmoor in Dutch and whatnot. And it's very closely associated with that first wave of, of colonial... Uh, uh, of colonies um, with the Dutch uh, and the English um, bringing tobacco over from, you know, well, the Dutch, not so much the, the, the Dutch bringing it over, you know, shipping it over, but the English, you know, producing it in Virginia and whatnot. And they're first marking these tobacco sacks that are coming from, you know, the 13 colony or, you know, coming from the, the new world colonies. Um, they're marking the tobacco sacks with these. Uh, they're not quite, they're not, they're not, they're sort of, almost like a guild symbol, but it's, it's, it's like, it's a post guild evolution. <laughs> if you want to talk about it that way. Um, and they're using them as a marker of exotic, of exotic origin, almost a providence of exotic origin. Uh-huh. So how do you know your tobacco is actually coming from, you know, Virginia or the new world? It's right. not, it's not even really Virginia yet. Um, well, you know, because the sack actually has this black figure of exoticism sewn on it. Right. Um, and then, there's a, there's a lot of imitation going on. And so then all these Dutch uh, tobacco merchants um, are, um, are crafting uh, these uh, very similar looking to each other images, but all slightly different. And they, and they have this almost nebulous exoticism associated with them. So you could have the same figure. And one is, 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 uh, has, you know, is at, it has you know, the, the label Virginia. Um, and the exact same figure, which is a you know, stark black figure with you know, a tobacco leaf skirt. Um, would have the name African and would be riding an elephant. Um, and so the symbol becomes almost a, a generic, uh, generic is not quite the right word. Uh, uh, stereotyped. St- well, it's not, it's not a stereotype. It's not. And, mm-hmm. and, and cause I'm very, I have to, one of the things I struggle with this book is very precise use of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of uh, evocative language. Um, but it is, but it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's an evocative symbol. Um, of, of it's, it's, it's a universal symbol of exotic origins. Mm-hmm. Um, and the odd thing is, is <clears throat> the universality of this is, comes in part because of technology, the printing technology um, of putting imagery into something in the 16th or 17th, 17th century. You're, you're talking about adding an image to a classified ad. Um, you know, of course, you have you know, typeset for the letters, but for the image, you actually have to carve the Yeah, it's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the woodblocks have to be cheap, and you have to stamp them out, um, yeah. and they only last so long. Yeah, they don't last very long. Yeah, you do. <laughs> exactly. I've studied this intensively. They do not last long. <laughs> exactly. 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 So, um, so you see a flexibility where these these same figures are you are repatterned for different things. So, for example, in, in the United States, I've seen the tobacco or more image, the exact same image as you being used to sell slaves. Uh-huh. Um, and it's being used as a sort of a, an eye catching thing in, in, in 17th century, uh, 18th century classified ads to sell slaves And the same, basically the virtually same image in Britain is the Blackamoor being used to sell tobacco in, in, in the Dutch Netherlands and Germany being used to sell tobacco. Also, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a quick question about the word more. Yes. Okay. So uh, uh, in my understanding, which is very primitive, a Moor right. is a Muslim from North Africa. Yes. <laughs> that, that's what I understand it as. Now, did, did, did people in, 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 let's say, early 19th century Germany or late 18th century Germany, when this thing you know, sort of begins to appear, uh, did they just think of a Moor as a black person? 
Yes. Was that, um, you know, they didn't have Schwarze? I don't know, what did they just say more and that meant black person? And uh, you No, know, de- definitely, definitely. And in fact, uh, there's a, a fantastic book in German, uh, Schwarze Moor Edel Teufel. Uh, or sorry, the other way around. <laughs> Schwarze Teufel Edel Moor. Um, and which basically, you know, black devil, uh, noble Moor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, but the Moor is definitely, I mean, the Moor, the figure of the Moor in Germany goes all the way back, um, yeah. you know, basically biblical times. You yeah. know, in, in German... Um, iconography in the 13th medieval iconography, 13th century. One of the um, the three uh, wise men was often figured as mm-hmm. as a black figure, as a Moor, huh. yeah. um, because it represented the, the three wise men represented the three continents: right. um, Europe, uh, Asia, and Africa. And um, and so Moors, you know, from from you know from the Crusades onwards, you know, you know, Moorenkopf, you know, the Moor's head. Um, this is a standard medieval. Um, uh, uh, heraldic symbol, mm-hmm. um, and then from there, uh, so, so Moors are definitely um, in Germany, in particular, uh, sort of a generic figure of exotified blackness. Yeah, I got it. Okay, but it has nothing to do with being Muslim, really. Nothing directly. No. Well, it, it comes out of the Crusades originally, uh-huh. um, and there's an assumption, you know, the more Venice or whatever, <laughs> there's an assumption that there is some sort of you know connection to Islam, but that that fades. Okay. That fades. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, that confused me too, so I'm glad you cleared that up. Sure. Okay, so where were we? Now we have these basically, you know, one of the things that reminded me of, I just have to say this, is that uh, when, um, when paper began to be produced en masse in the, in the, in the 16th century, really, they, 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 there was a proliferation of what were really uh, trademarks for paper producers. And their whole books of them, they're watermarks. Yes. So like one of the stereotyped ones is the fool's head. Yeah. There are like 150 <laughs> kinds of fool's heads, right, all borrowed from one another. And people were basically knocking off each other's paper. <laughs> Did you say they had these fool's head? And, and, you know, it's kind of a similar sort of thing because as you show in the book, like, you, as I say, if, 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 if our audience reads the book, and I hope they do, you'll see that, 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 that you see one image from, you know, I don't know, the 17th century and then one from the 18th century and then the 19th century. And the only difference is they get clearer. <laughs> the, the art's better, but they're the same image. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and one thing I found is is that um, you know when I'm starting in the uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, um, and then I'm trying to trace this imagery back, um, they have these lineages that, that 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 sort of twist backwards through you know multiple origins and you know back centuries. Um, at the same time, the image itself, and this is, I think, a really um, important argument in my book, the images themselves, the function of the images change over time. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is one of the, that's what, that's what separates the stereotype of, of the modern age, the mass-reproduced image, um, from the, uh, the sort of the allegorical uh, generic figure of the, of the 18th century. The, yeah, but before we get to that, and that's, that's, I want to I focus on that, but did, what did Germans actually know about Africans in the let's say before the late 19th century were there any Africans in Germany I mean did they did they know anything about Africa there were actually there's some really there's some really interesting work being done um, by historians about um, Africans who who came uh, to Germany and, and basically the roots of because there is an Afro a small Afro German community now um, and the sort of the, the ancient roots of this uh, not ancient but um, the centuries old roots of this Afro German community um, but yeah there were um, you know, Germany, uh, the Prussia was um, briefly involved in the slave trade and briefly had a colony on the on the uh, the west coast of Africa um, in the 16th century, and um, and there were uh, you know Moors um, in quotations <laughs> um, that, that came to Germany, sometimes purchased as slaves, mm-hmm. um, sometimes you know wound up there. 
Um, and, you know, like uh, Frederick the Great, you know, uh, had uh, some uh, a Moorish uh, uh, band leader, <laughs> for instance. I mean, there, so there's, there, there's all sorts of, and of course, the port cities, um, uh, uh, Bremen and Hamburg um, in the 18th century, you know, bring in, you know, all sorts of people from all sorts of places, mm-hmm. including people from North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but with all, so there, there is a little bit of, um, there are some people of either Northern African or even some of Sub-Saharan African descent in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, but the numbers are very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, it's more that what sort of Africa represents to Germany um, in the, the 17th and 18th century, it's, uh, it's sort of a, well, I'm a little uh, out of my century here, but, <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it's safe to say um, that uh, there, there, there's an exotic element um, there's a there's an other element, mm-hmm. um, but it's definitely the figure of of you know Af- Africa in the in the in the imagination of 18th century Germans is this almost impossibly fantastic land, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and this changes in in 19th century. It changes rather quickly mm-hmm. um, as the Germans um, read, especially they they pick up um, a, a lot of uh, travel writing. Um, you know, by, by British explorers uh, at mid-century, and these are translated into German, and then German explorers go there. And so you know, by, by the 1870s, 1880s, Germans are very, even before Germany gets their own colonial empire, um, German travel writers and ethnographers um, and sort of amateur scientists are very much, um, you know, missionaries are all in, in Africa, you know, working you know, either on their own or else part of the British imperial system. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, oh, go ahead. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the, the meaning of the images and the images themselves. So uh, we, you've got us to the point where there are these, um, you know, I, I, would, I would call them kind of uh, identification marks for certain products, especially yes. tobacco and coffee. But, yes. but this is before the era of mass image advertising. Um, yes. So w- w- that era starts in the 1890s, is that right? Definitely, definitely. Okay. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and how these images of the, the tobacco more and so on and so forth kind of filter into and are selected by and then... Uh, elaborated into you know really quite stylized artistic productions in the in the 1890s and what they mean. Sure, sure, I, I'd be happy to. Yeah, the 1890s was really pivotal moment um, for for basically the birth of advertising um, in Germany and in, in the 1880s, you know, in, in Britain and, and the United States as well. Um, and one of the things, just just to back up just a little bit, uh, Marshall, one of the things I first noticed when I started re- you know, reading histories of German advertising um, written by Germans in the 1920s or even in the 1900s is they always claim that advertising is ancient. You know, advertising goes back to <laughs> ancient lineage. It goes back to the very first, you know, language when the very first cave met. Not, they don't use the word cave. Yeah. When, the, you know, the very first, um, you know, in ancient Mesopotamia, he shouts out his wares, you know, come buy my wares. Um, and they all, they all try and see this ancient lineage of advertising. Um, but the thing that I really want to emphasize most is the idea and, and images and, you know, the, the, these markers, you know, guild marks and, um, you know, allegorical uh, symbols and these watermarks that, you know, I'm talking about these tobacco moors. These are all associated with, you know, some form of, you know, merchandising or commerce or whatnot as trademarks, as symbols, as identifier marks, you know, things like that. But the idea that a picture, um, a visual image should actually sell a product. The, the image itself should somehow make the argument, make the claim, make the make the the forceful claim on your attention that you would then purchase this product because of the image or because of the promise in the image. That is startlingly new. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, that that's the core of our culture today. I mean, I think advertising makes up, you know, the core of, of Western mm-hmm. cultures, particularly in the United States. Um, and we, it's so easy for us to overlook how startlingly new that is. Um, but that really comes into Germany in the 1880s and 1890s, especially the 1890s. Um, and one of the things, the, the first advertisers, so they have this new technology. They have, um, you know, lithographic uh, print technologies advanced to the point where images have become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to reproduce. Uh, and they have sort of a, a booming economy <laughs> and they have sort of a spirit, you know, there's an air of entre- entrepreneurial, you know, and there's, there's new products coming in from, um, from all over the world. And so this is a really a, a time of economic ferment. Um, and German advertisers then are, um, they have to, in some ways, um, they, they, they drift into using images more and more, um, in a more and more alluring fashion, more and more provocative fashion, and provocative meaning sort of reach out and sort of grab hold of, of the passerby and, and, and seize attention. Um, and this is all, of course, tied up with, you know, mass reproduction, urban, you know, uh, of images, but also of goods, urbanization, you know, there's all sorts of economic, social, um, you know, physical, spatial, you know, things going on here um, that are all tightly tied together and it's hard to separate them out. Um, but in the midst of all this, what advertisers have to do is sell themselves. And they have to sell themselves to Germans, to mm-hmm. Germans. Um, and they have to, um, because this was not something that was being done. Um, and uh, in fact, there are all sorts of, you know, uh, recent advertising histories of Germany, like um, that of Lamberti and, and whatnot, um, talk about how advertisers face opposition. For one thing, you know, the idea of using imagery to sell goods and to provoke to, and to pro goods, you know, in an overly aggressive fashion is, is declassé. You know, it's something you do with patent medicine. And we even have that phrase, it's the same thing in the U.S., you know, patent medicine huckster, right? <laughs> you know, like P.T. Barnum, right? There's something a little bit uh, distasteful about the sort of over-the-top promotion of the patent medicines, you know, in, in the 1870s and 1880s. Well, in Germany, it's like that, but even more so. And, uh, and so the advertisers have to establish themselves. And one of the ways they do this is, as I mentioned before, they talk about themselves as, as artists and as professionals. Um, but they also talk about themselves as, on the one hand, importing um, ideas, modern ideas, modernity from, from the United States and from Great Britain. And on the other hand, um, pulling on these age-old German themes. And so an advertiser who's crafting a tobacco ad um, in 1890 can look to the tobacco war use that same notion that somehow tobacco was associated with a black figure, you know, a century ago um, when you would buy your tobacco um, from your local tobacconist. But now you can, you know, with the new technology, you can wrap the product, you wrap the, uh, the tobacco tin in imagery, you can wrap the, uh, uh, you, you can have a poster, you know, um, showing the image of, of, of the figure, you know, posted in a train station so everyone is, is seeing this image. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, you want to, to have a certain sense of resonance. And so by, by drawing on this figure of the tobacco more um, and then changing it, updating it, um, incorporating new elements, incorporating a much more vivid depiction, incorporating a, a visually arresting uh, a style of presentation. And the second half of my book is all about um, the, this visual process because it's, it's, it's interesting. Advertisers don't talk about these visual processes nearly as much as they talk um, about, you know, their own expertise, but you see them happening. When you actually trace 
And that's why there's really three components to my book. There's the advertising component, the imperialism component, and then the visual component. Visuality almost has a life of its own. It's mm-hmm. decentralized in its production. It's uh, um, strategies uh, of visuality emerge, not because advertisers are, are promoting them, but because they, they work. Um, and they, you know, I've used that word in quotations, but they're, they're, they're seen to be powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can, re, you can reconfigure a, uh, uh, an image of the tobacco moor into, you put it into a colonial context. So the tobacco moor is this generic figure of exoticism, but wait, instead we're going to have um, an African figure carrying the tobacco on his head to you, the consumer. Um, and this is a, visually, a much more visually arresting image. Um, and it's also an image of power. It, it flatters the consumer. You know, here, here is your servant being portrayed to you on a poster, bringing you your tobacco from the German colonies, mm-hmm. even though the tobacco is bought, you know, in Amsterdam, you know, mm-hmm. from the, you know, the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a way that, that, that the colonial, um, in, this, in this moment, 1890 to 1900, the colonial terrain of Africa um, really becomes um, a way to repattern old images um, remake them in more powerful, more visually arresting ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So w- w- one question I had was, y- you point out in the book, on the one hand, that uh, there is this attention paid by advertisers and the people who buy advertising to uh, both this tradition of something like the tobacco more, the images of Africans in uh, what's called trademarking or branding. And, mm-hmm. and um, th- these images do spread, and they mm-hmm. become uh, more well wrought. Let's put it that way. They are they are they are actually quite artistic at a certain point, as as yes. off putting as they may be to us. They they are yeah. rendered well. Um, but on the other hand, you point out that Germans are actually quite ambivalent about imperialism. Yes, but they don't they really like it so much. I mean, they're, they they they're sort of they're, they're inner regarding. They're not you know they're not as excited about Southwest yeah. Africa. <laughs> yes, that's true. And and there's and and actually, and here's where I have to sort of be a little bit of a, a splitter and basically make distinctions. That you know, you have, of course, the colonial enthusiasts, the members of the German colonial society, where Germany's colonies are the be all and end all, um, and they're the ones who, in in histories that deal with German colonialism, they get all the attention because they're the loudest. Um, but the even they complain. Um, that there, that sort of German society is too, you know, uninterested in the colonial question. That, that's sort of their perspective and their own interpretation. Um, but I think it's safe to say that most Germans, um, you know, in the eight, you know in the eighteen nineties, um, are not terribly interested in uh, in the idea of colonies and the practice of colonies. You know, there may be they have their attention, you know, captured by a little bit of uh, you know ethnographic uh, by ethnographic show here, like these people shows, which I can talk about later on if you like. Um, or they have their attention captured by, a, you know, a colonial society sponsored exhibition, or maybe they see, uh, you know, an article in a newspaper about, you know, uh, you know, our, our new, you know, our new country people in, you know, in, in East Africa or whatnot. But for the most part, there's not a lot of interest in it. And partly, I mean, there's some economic reasons here, too, that the German colonies never produce economically. Um, they're, for the most part, with a few exceptions, they're, they're actually a loss. They're a drain on the German national treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like uh, the German colonies in Africa are never like India is for Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never this enormous generator of wealth and also of prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the British 
you know, cultivate their own sense of prestige um, from from India and really rebroadcast, <laughs> you know, themselves as imperialists because they have this great, you know, wealth generated in India. So there's a way that economics and culture really are uh, um, are always working in tandem with each other. Mm-hmm. But in Germany, there's not that economic thing going on. So you have you have the politicized colonialists who are sort of loudly proclaiming, uh, you know, Germany's need to colonize, and you have an, an there is really no economy of colonialism that, that really is working. Um, mm-hmm. um, Germans are getting all of their cocoa from you know places in South America, like uh, like Ecuador, mm-hmm. and they're getting tobacco from the southern United States. You know, um, so there's not this there's not a way to connect economically with Germans. Um, and what finally captures attention um, in Germany um, of the German public, um, my book argues, is war. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the first you know there's the, uh, the when the Germans seize the, the city of Kiaochu, which is current in Jiaozu, which is a, a, a city on the coast of China. Um, this is this this moment that's celebrated in the mass media, and then advertisers pick up on um, the sort of jingoistic um, seizing of this of this Chinese colony, and then advertisers themselves play on it and reinforce it at the same time. And then the Boer War. In, uh, in South Africa between the British um, and the Boers um, over the, the fate of South Africa. This also is, is seized upon by the new mass media in Germany. Again, you have to think of advertising and the mass media very much in harness with each other. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the new, just recently emerging mass media, you know, newspapers being pitched to a much broader audience. Um, the newspapers need to sell uh, uh, more newspapers um, and the, the, the price of the newspaper is lowered because the advertisements in the advertisements in the newspaper make the newspaper more affordable so the circulation can expand so the audience can expand so the you know, so, so there's sort of a chicken and egg thing going on or a mutually reinforcing cycle thing going on here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I was trying I was trying to think of an American uh, uh, parallel because Americans are I, I would say I, I think yeah. many of my colleagues would disagree that Americans are extraordinarily ambivalent about uh, let's let's say overseas adventures or imperialism. <laughs> Um, although for some reason our colleagues are always saying that we have an empire. I don't, I don't know how that can be, but in any event, American imperialism, whatever that is, I don't know if I've ever met an American who wants to build an empire. But anyway, I, I was trying to think, you know, there are racist images of, of Filipinos, for example, and, you know, they're Cuban cigars and things like that. But I really can't think of any, any except you certainly are not going to sell anything by saying it comes from Iraq today no. in the United States. You're just not going to. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I kind of... Cuba, but Cuba is an interesting point there because a Cuba, the, the Cuban, the Cuban uh, uh, cigar um, packages are originally produced in Cuba. And so there's a sort of yeah. um, this moment of, of sort of self-produced exhaustism where Cuban, you know, uh, are producing their own incredibly beautiful chromolithographed cigar tins, mm-hmm. exporting them all over the world. Same thing happens in Germany with the, the Egyptian cigarette market. Um, Egyptians are producing these incredibly gorgeous um, tins to, 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 to keep their cigarettes in. Um, and then the Germans, you know, come to associate, you know, the exoticism mm-hmm. of the cigarette with, you know, the, with Egypt. And so, you know, Americans and Germans both tend to associate the exoticism of the cigar with Cuba. And these are all in some ways almost initially they're self-promoted. Mm-hmm. Um, um, images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a thread that we picked up and then dropped uh, a few months ago, but I want to come back to it, and that is the influence or not of uh, American cultural and particularly American minstrel shows on, <laughs> yes. on this stuff. Yes. Yeah, 
Yes. Well, one of one of the startling. I'm going to have to work backwards just a little bit here. And unfortunately, you can't can't do this over the over the radio or the podcast. But yeah, I have to sort of describe the images. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> tough. I know. And it is, you know, images worth a thousand words. So it might take me a thousand words to get. Well, actually, we might be able to put some of the images up on on the uh, on on the uh, website. We'll yeah. see if we can do that. Okay, sounds good. Um, so, um, but one of the things I noticed again sort of working backwards as I'm, as I'm flipping page by page through these trademark registrations and digging through museum collections and, and you know, going through uh, professional advertising journals and whatnot, I'm noticing that right around 1900, um, just and especially 1903, 1904, the images um, of Africans start to get a lot more racist. Um, and it's an imprecise word, racist, but what I mean by that is they get there's more graphic emphasis placed on the, the differentiation of the racial features. Mm-hmm. So their lips get larger, um, their stature gets smaller, their ears get bigger, their eyes get bigger. And this is uniformly across. I mean, it starts out in fits and starts, um, but by 1910, it's completely uniform. And so I wanted to know, where does this come from? And that's where I, I start to trace different things back. And, and of course, there's a tradition of caricature in Germany. Um, with Wilhelm Busch, you know, in the 1880s, even right, even before that, and then they get Busch's work gets really popular in the 1880s. Um, but one of the things that I hit upon, I'm seeing that this first wave of German racially inspired advertising is all having with not depictions of Africans, but depictions of African Americans. And there's really two paths um, that that these come to Germany. Um, and one I can talk about later is on, on German on American products like toothpaste and things like that. But the, but even before then, we see German poster advertisers as early as the 1880s. There were poster poster designers um, in the 1880s crafting posters in Germany for American minstrel shows, um, and they're using this incredibly racialized, this heightened uh, graphic depiction of racialization because it's totally suitable for the minstrel show. The minstrel show is a over-the-top, you know, uh, depiction of, you know, of race, right? Um, and these minstrel shows, these, 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 in the 1880s, these American minstrel shows are touring Germany. They, they first tour Britain, um, and then they, they go on to the continent, and they're touring Germany. Um, and there's a way that these minstrel shows um, become a sensation in Germany. Now, I don't think they're necessarily understood. <laughs> um, and the reason why I say that is for two reasons. One is at the same time you have these minstrel shows, which are, you know, white Americans for the most part, and then sometimes black Americans too later on, especially, um, putting on blackface and acting out, you know, an exaggerated depiction of, you know, life in, you know, the, the racialized South or, you know, in the North or what, what have you. Um, you have this exaggerated depiction, this comic over-the-top uh, depiction of, of, of race that's circulating in Germany at the same time you have all these other people shows like the Carl Hagenbeck and some of these other um, entrepreneurs are bringing, you know, real live natives from, from, from uh, Tierra del Fuego or from Australia or from, or from other places and bringing them to, to Germany and, and showing them as a sort of a national, as a living national geographic, right? Um, here we're, we're having people perform their own culture. And the minstrel shows arrive in Germany at the exact same time that these other groups of quote-unquote natives are also being portrayed as authentic peoples of nature. So you have these two sort of shows swirling around themselves, <laughs> uh, swirling around Germany. Um, and I think it's pretty safe to say, I don't think the Germans necessarily recognize the over-the-top racial caricature of, of the minstrel show. And I, I saw one, uh, I, I, I stumbled across one amazing story where 
in the 1880s in Hamburg, um, they actually arrest a minstrel show. There's actually the police are called out and they arrest their performers because the German audience figures out that these aren't real blacks, that these are white people with, with corked up faces. And they're furious. They think they've been scammed. Um, and, you know, we came here to see real, real American blacks performing their culture. And here you, you're giving us a bunch of white people who are corked up and exaggerating. Um, and, of course, the thing is all smoothed over pretty quickly. But <laughs> so, so the shows themselves become popular. Um, and they become popular in part also, and just to go back again, sort of lineages, everything goes back to something before. I um, mean, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin is a uh-huh. best in Germany. Um, and then after the minstrel shows, then there's the cakewalk craze that circulates through Germany. And there's all sorts of, there's a series of periodic waves of things coming from the U.S. Um, you know, and that's, you know, jazz in the 20s and then, you know, rap, you know, in the 80s. Um, but um, the, so there's the, and, and the, these, uh, so in this particular moment, then they're, they're, the, the minstrel show is the craze. And then the poster designers incorporate these exaggerated characters in the 1880s and then they make their way onto other depictions of blacks mm-hmm. um, later on mm-hmm. a, a decade or two later mm-hmm. I see. so that's that's the first that's that's one lane it's you know everything is sort of has multiple origins but the minstrel show is definitely one origin for german racial I, in the minstrel show posters of the 1880s and 1890s are one origin for the uh, the racialized advertising of 1910 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now near the end of your book you present a, a thesis about a, tra- a, a transformation or change in what these images mean uh, for Germans. It, it, it moves from a, a kind of a representation of uh, the exotic, something that's very different, certainly something that is uh, inferior to, but something still appealing in these images to something that's quite different. Uh, and, and it's bound up with, what I guess, what we'd call scientific racism. And also a certain... Um, I don't know, certain defensiveness on the Germans' part. They, they, uh, they begin to think that they are beset, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, this will have really dire consequences a couple of times in the 20th century. So if you could talk just a little bit about that, that would be great. <laughs> sure, sure thing. I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy to, definitely, definitely. Um, and, um, yeah, yes, definitely there, there is, there is a, a change in the way these images um, um, are formed and in the universality and in the, in the context they appear in. Um, and just to, just to back up just a little bit, one of the things that we see between 1900 and 1910 is that the images are increasingly of, of Africans and uh, are both increasingly racialized in the ways that I've just described with larger lips and, and diminished figure. But they're also increasingly placed in positions of inferiority vis-a-vis the product. So and it's, it's a way for advertisers to show the prominence, the power of the product and this is done optically. And by optically, I mean it's done with scale. So you have, you have the giant, you know, the margarine container, which is really the size of a hand, is suddenly blown up to enormous size. Mm-hmm. And the caricatured Africans are, are shouldering it, um, carrying the margarine, you know, uh, you know, or they're beneath the margarine or they're around the margarine and worshipping it. There's all sorts of different ways. But, but the, the power relationship is set up in the advertisement so that the figure in so that the so that the product is is displayed, and the 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 grandness, the power of the product is displayed by the inferiority of the company and figure. And Africans are incredibly useful for this because there's many other images that are circulating in German advertising. Images of you know the pale white woman who's who's show, who's selling soap, um, or the maternal figure. You know the more you know um, uh, you know sort of. Uh, 
full-figured <laughs> maternal figure um, who's, you know, uh, eating, you know, cocoa to her, you know, cherubic children, um, you know, or the thin white man who's wearing the modern suit. You know, I mean, there, there are other images there, too, but especially women and children are the other, are the, are the main sort of, um, you know, white women and white children are the, the other two main iconic figures. Mm-hmm. But the African figure is more useful than they are because you can really put an in Germany that doesn't have um, – uh, a large African minority there at the time. Um, they, you can you can diminish the figure more. You can humiliate the figure more in the picture, um, and thus extol the product more visually. Um, and advertisers do that more and more and more, and they do that in increasingly hegemonic ways. So that by 1910, all images of Africans um, in advertising are small, diminished, and in a position of inferiority to this this product in a way of selling the product Mm -hmm. and that's when i then jump to the context of image and that's where you know the context of a mass reproduced stereotype is enormously different from that of a tobacco more because a tobacco more and you see it maybe once or twice you know you know your tobacconists um whereas these mass reproduced imagery that now looks all alike because the advertisers are all imitating each other is everywhere Mm -hmm. and it's it's in every magazine it's it's on posters everywhere and the figures are all sort of universally um, done in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fig- African figure is also useful in one additional way, not just to diminish it, to, uh, to promote the, uh, the, the grandness of the commodity, but also to appeal to a wider audience. So you have, you know, Germany in the 1890s, 1900s, an incredibly stra- class-stratified society. You have aristocrats, you have, you know, middle-class lawyers, you have working class, you have the socialist, uh, you know, movement is, you know, socialist party um, in Germany um, by, by, 19, uh, oh, by 1900, 1905 is the largest political party. Yeah. Oh, it's the largest political party, yeah. right? It's massive. The socialists are well-organized. The middle-class um, Germans are, are increasingly anxious about, about you know, these sort of rough, rough around the edges workers becoming political, and this is the era of growing mass politics. And this is this prevents it presents a huge dilemma to advertisers because let's say you're you're going to advertise um, to uh, you, you're trying to advertise a, a, a cigarette or something. Do you do you pitch it with imagery that will be appeal only to the middle class? Um, in which case they can afford it and they can buy it, but you're going to lose your this huge. Uh, pool of potential, you know, working class purchasers, mm-hmm. or do you pitch the the image so that it appeals to the working class, and then the middle class feels like it's a little bit deplacing? Mm-hmm. So advertisers, they needed a generic consumer. They needed the idea of a German who just bought things to have to, to consume things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this figure doesn't really exist in Germany. You know, the, the culture is so is so. Um, you know, even consumption is so wrapped up in class. You know, middle class people smoke cigars. You know, uh, you know, um, working class people uh, drink beer. Even middle class, but, you know, there's all sorts of you know class oriented consumptions going on. One of the useful things about an African figure is that in a visual realm, like when you actually print it out on a piece of paper, <laughs> um, you can the, the the blackness of the figure starkly differentiates itself from any white figures in there. Mm-hmm. So my book, uh, for example, has um, the Cocosamore, which is this caricatured, stark, pitch black um, figure that um, is offering to a group of German children um, the Cocosa margarine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the German children, when you look closely, they're all a little bit different. I mean, they all look sort of, you know, kind of generic children. But you're, it's much more difficult to see 
distinctions between the children. You know, what are they wearing? Are they middle class? Are they working class? Well, you know, in Germany, you know, in 1907, you can tell immediately what class someone is by the clothes. But in the advertisement, it's very difficult to see what clothes they're wearing because this stark black figure is such a visual contrast to them. So, uh, again, again, this is very difficult to articulate verbally, much more easier to show visually. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a way in which um, the the stark chromatic contrast of blackness is useful in in advertising, in hiding differences amongst um, the white, white figures. And so in, in this very visual way, and then also all, all sorts of intellectual and, um, and, and other ways as well, the idea of racial difference, of the Africans as a race apart, um, builds the idea of a coherent German. I mean, helps helps to mm-hmm. Germans to imagine themselves as a coherent, you know, no, I'm not a middle-class person from Hamburg. I'm a German. I know I'm a German because I see this African there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so, you know, a lot of people have worked on identity um, being constructed um, in, in in stark contrast, you know, I know I'm German because rather than a uh, Württemberger, because the person across the border is is French. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a way in which we, we you know, historians have really investigated how identity is constructed. National identities are often constructed antagonistically to each other. And historians of imperialism talk about how, you know, uh, national identities are often constructed imperialistically, you know, in, in terms of racial uh, contrast to each other. And the British imagine themselves as British rather than Scottish or English or, or Welsh, mm-hmm. um, because you know they're not black. You know they're not Indian. They're not. Um, well, there's a way in which advertising works um, in the same context as well. Um, but the promoting not uh, not a, a German nationalist, um, you know, who who hates the French or a uh, or a British, you know, a British identity of a you know who's responsible for the civilizing mission, um, who will uplift you know the the lower races but rather a generic German consumer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, let me um, ask uh, one final question before I ask what you're working on now. Uh, it's kind of a trick question. Uh, cul- culture is tenacious, uh, yes. and it, it tends to stick around even when we think it's gone. Is any of this left in Germany now? Oh, yes. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, the most famous, my book ends basically with the, um, um, the construction, uh, the image of the Zerati Moor. Um, and any German, every single German, you'll ever talk to has heard of the Zerati Moor. Um, it's probably one of the most famous um, commercial icons, you know, commercial stereotype icons. And it's a caricatured black figure um, in, in Oriental, you know, in harem pants mm-hmm. and stuff he had. And it sells uh, Zerati chocolate um, and has sold Zerati chocolate since 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very much at the tail end of this development. So it incorporates, this figure incorporates all these things. Well, the Sarati Moore was, is beloved, you know, uh, this beloved icon, you know, sort of like Aunt Jemima, um, yep. but, but even more, even more prevalent in Germany, all the way up through, um, you know, the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I was, you know, in, in Germany, and they still, um, the Sarati still uh, sometimes sponsors, I mean, they, they might have eased up on this in the last five or ten, five years or so, but 10 years ago, I definitely saw, um, um, remember, you know, sort of people dressing up in blackface and dressing themselves up as the Sarati Moore with these yeah. huge caricature lips and everything. Something that would be completely unacceptable in the United States. And and many Germans not realizing that this is actually, you know, a little bit... Uh, <laughs> anyway, but there's also all sorts of other ways. So, you know, Sarati Moore is one example, but there's also other ways, you know, the uh, Negrokusa, these, uh, you know, Negro kisses or these, you know, treats that you can buy... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's ways in which the, uh, the imprint 
of this sort of this of uh, uh, racialized consumption um, that comes from the Kaiserreich is is still very much in evidence in, in many parts of Germany. Although that's changing, and that's changing with globalization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I was uh, I was thinking, and this is a sort of aside. Oh, um, if you watch uh, sort of highbrow German films, yes, that in any way involve Americans or American, you would think that about fifty percent of Americans were black. <laughs> because there is always a black character in every one of these films. There's always a black character. Usually half of the characters are black, and I, I never understand it. But like, they really like fixate on this. You know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, but I mean, the other thing to say is Aunt Jemima is still around. So is Uncle Ben. Okay. Oh yeah, no, that's you can go to your local supermarket and sing him. You know? Yeah, that's that, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, but, uh, but an, but an, an African American uh, friend of mine who was in Berlin, uh, she at the same time I was. She talked about. Um, how incredibly different it was to be black in Germany today than it is to be uh, black in the United States. Um, and it has its own costs. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, it's yeah. very much constantly being uh, sort of exotified. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she, she said to me at one point very directly, you know, almost, you know, consumed <laughs> in, yeah. a, in, an odd, in an odd way. Not feared, but but sort of consumed. I hear it's the same way in Japan with very tall people. I'm six four, and I'm going to Japan <laughs> next summer. And I'm told that people will walk up to me and want to take pictures of me. Oh, I can't I, wait. I could completely imagine someone that. could be a giant. You know, he's six four. Wow, look at that. Look at that weirdo. Um, anyway, <laughs> I don't mind. It's okay because I am kind of a weirdo. So anyway, let, let me um, close the interview by asking our uh, traditional uh, final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Oh, well, I'm actually, I'm working on, on two very different projects. Um, one is uh, my more immediate project, uh, project is, a, is a book, Selling War. And if, if the first book looked, about, looked at blackness in German culture, the second book uh, look, will look at whiteness in German culture. And a specific, a specific branch of whiteness, a specific thread of whiteness, if you will, uh, sort of a militarized whiteness. So one of the things this book is, is grappling with is, what role did advertising play um, in constructing visions of white Germans before the First World War? Um, how did um, advertising um, morph into propaganda? Because there's all sorts of really interesting yeah. um, things going on where you, you see direct personnel transfers, you know, graphic designers who have been working on consumer culture in 1912 are basically knocking on the doors of government. Um, in 1916, please give us a job. We are the master manipulators. We can manipulate the psyche of the Germans and <laughs> so they can win the war. Please pay us because yeah. there's more consumer economy. Um, and so what, what is the relationship between advertising and propaganda? What's the, uh, what is the relationship between advertising and militarism, particularly leading up to the war? And then the third part of this project is, and how does this play into the imagery of fascism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Susan Zontag and others have wrote, you know, very um, uh, provocatively on, on, on that there is a recognizable fascist image. Um, and, uh, and what I want to do is I want to sort of unpack that a little bit and, and do what I did in the first book um, and sort of trace backwards and see, you know, is there, you know, what is a, a, a fascist uh, image identity look like? Um, and can it, can it be unpacked? Can it, um, how much does it relate to advertising? How much does it relate to propaganda? Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing. So that, that, that's sort of a that, that that's one project I have. And um, the other project is uh, is one that I've probably been working on a long time, but it's a it's a it's a labor of love, and it's the uh, uh, the image of the banana in German. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me! <laughs> I'm not kidding. The banana. <laughs> I kid you not. The banana. Okay. 
And, yeah. and because, All right, peel that back for us. <laughs> and, oh, and it's, a, it's a four. It's a four stage project. Uh-huh. Four, uh, four, a four moment project. You know, the first moment is in the 1880s, 1890s. Because one of the things I was doing when I was tracing this book is I was dug, digging through all these grocers' journals. Yeah. So I, I found all this fantastic evidence about you know when the banana first comes to Germany, you know, uh, coming from South America, uh, Latin, you know, Latin and Central, Central and South America on steamships. Um, it's hailed in Germany as this wonder food. So I have all these fantastic sources talking about, um, okay, this is a banana. You don't, you know, these are, these are, you know, uh, signs in store windows. This is a banana. You don't, you, you do not eat the peel. You do not need to cook it. It's wonderfully nutritious. And at the same time, I have some of these colonialists who are going to German industrialists and saying, look, this banana is this great wonder food. We need um, to have colonies um, that produce bananas. Because if we can have cheap bananas in Germany, we can feed them to the workers. Um, the workers can live off of bananas just like the apes in Africa do. Oh, yeah. Um, and if they live entirely off of this wonder food, the banana, you can cut wages um, and, you, and your profits will skyrocket. Mm-hmm. So that's this moment of the 1880s, 1890s where banana is the symbol for the potential, the unrealized potential of the imperial economy, of the mm-hmm. colonial um, with all of its racist banana engine of imperialism, <laughs> exactly. Then the 1920s, of course, is Josephine Baker with her famous banana dance, um, and that's that's tied into an entirely different thing. The banana has become, of course, eroticized in the Freudian sense, but also um, it's 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 now this sort of more generic tropical thing. You know, um, I don't I don't have any idea what you mean about eroticized in the Freudian sense. Can you explain that a little bit? I don't know what you're talking about. No, go I, ahead. I so, uh, and then, of course, um, and then, you know, Adolf Hitler pursuing autarky. You know, it says right. it in the four yeah. points. You know, Germans don't need bananas. We're not apes. We're not, you know, we're not right. monkeys. Um, and there's a sort of racialized autarky that's in Hitler's mind. And then the final moment, of course, in 1989, when the wall comes down, um, the banana is the symbol of deprivation for East Germans. So when East Germans pour into, East Berliners pour into West Berlin, Shops in West Berlin, they have no money, uh, at least at first. Um, they can't buy anything. They're just basically looking. West Berliners buy batches and batches of bananas and hand bananas to East Germans coming in um, to, the, to the stores um, as a sort of a welcome to the West. Here's the, the forbidden fruit. And in fact, wow. there, there's, there's some, there's some uh, I, I've read claims that banana was, a, the banana was and rather than the apple was, in fact, the original forbidden fruit. That's 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 sure, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's, uh, that's still a little bit... Uh, Umstritten, as the Germans yeah. would say. I, I don't know what to say about that. I know that in, in the Russian case, they have a kind of thing about oranges, not so much bananas. I don't know if they ever had bananas in the Soviet Union, but they must have had bananas. But I know that in the old Soviet Union, when oranges showed up, that was a sign that everything was right with the world. They right. very rarely sh- showed up. They were always from Egypt. But <laughs> right. oranges were like a really big deal. Oranges, yeah. So it sounds like a very interesting project to me. I was thinking about the fascist aesthetic in your first project. If, if, if anybody listening to this show lives in Washington, D.C., they can go see what it is. Just go down to the mall and look at the federal architecture. <laughs> there it is. I mean, it's, there are no better yeah. examples of it. Right down there. <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin has a beautiful uh, fascist building built in the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, so it's not, yeah, you don't really go far to see it. So anyway, anyway, David, it's really been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, my Marshall. Thank you okay, so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with David Ciarlo about his award-winning book, Advertising Empire, Race and Visual Culture in Imperial Germany. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.